Take our Bibles, please, and join me before we do communion. Go to John chapter 4. We were in this passage a few weeks ago when we were talking about worship at the first Sunday of the year. I'd like to return there to John chapter 4 for a little bit this morning. John chapter 4, it's a familiar story. Let me start off with a different story. There's a story that's told about a man by the name of James Lewis Macy. He was born in the middle 17th, 1700s. He was born in Britain. His father was a British nobleman. His mother was another British noble woman, but they weren't married. He was born out of wedlock. Therefore, he was this illegitimate son of the Duke of Northumberland, and as a result, he could never claim the title. He experienced rejection from the British society at that point. They told him that because of his illegitimacy, because of the birth status, that he wasn't of the noble class, so to speak, that he could never serve in any kind of a military or naval capacity as an officer, which was very common for those sons of nobility. He was told he would never be able to be a part of the parliament. He would never be able to hold any type of civic office. And as a result, as a young boy growing up and learning of all this rejection, learning all this different type of, of uh, attitude that was, that was forcing him into a, a, a lifestyle that he knew he deserved and he, he was of that class, but he wasn't going to be able to enjoy. He became extremely bitter, became very angry. Now, his mother was a wealthy woman in her own right, so she was able to afford to pay for his colleges. He goes to Pemberton College there in London, and when he enrolled, he enrolled in sciences and showed to have a great, great aptitude towards science. He graduated and showed himself to be a fantastic chemist. In a few short years, he was one of the most popular, well-known scientists there in Britain. And as a result, he was able to amass a huge fortune. You say, well, how, how did that happen? Because when he went to college, he changed his name. He didn't want to be known as Macy anymore, his last name, so he took upon himself a different name and basically hid his background. And he became somewhat accepted in society by, pre by pretending he was somebody different. But he was still bitter. He was still angry towards his fellow British. And he determined that he would, with his fortune, he would not leave it there in Britain. They would not enjoy none of the friends, family. Nobody would enjoy his wealth that he had amassed. And he thought he would give it to another country, a country that the British did not care for at that time. So he and his will determined that all of his fortune would go to the new found nation called the United States. And he had in his will a statement that said that you take all my wealth and you start a new science institution, one that people will be exposed to and see the benefits of science. And so that money came to the United States they started the, the foundation with his wealth, something that probably a lot of you have visited his foundation that he started. His name is Smithson, is the name that he took, right? He's the one who founded, his money's founded the Smithsonian Institute. Now, he did his response and his, his giving, and we benefited from it you know, as a nation, but he did all that because he was rejected. There's a story of another man who was of noble birth, that his family, his kinsmen, if you would, they rejected him too. They wanted nothing to do with him. In fact, when he first presented himself to the public when he was 30 years of age, their initial response was to criticize him. He's there in Jerusalem presenting himself, and he cleanses the temple, and he calls it that, that this is my father's house. The reaction of the crowds, the reaction of, of the leadership was really vile. So he leaves that area, 
and in John 4 he is traveling back towards his home country. He's going to be rejected there too. But unlike Macy, he has no bitterness. Unlike Macy, he's not trying to strike back at other people. In fact, he's trying to reach out to other people. The story of John chapter 4 is Jesus headed back towards, from Jerusalem down south, towards his hometown, Nazareth, Capernaum, up north. And he's traveling. And the way that the Jews would typically travel, if they're going to go, as we've talked about before, they would go around about this area in between called Samaria because it was occupied by the Samaritans. These people were half-breed Jews. That's what they were called. They were despised by the Jewish class, by all levels of Jewish class. And usually the people, when they're traveling from Jerusalem up this way or vice versa, they would go across the Jordan River, go down the, the eastern side, and then cross back to Jerusalem. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus comes and cuts right through the heart of Samaria, and he comes to a village of Sychar. It's a familiar village. It's got history to it. It's where Jacob's well was. And he comes there and he interacts with a woman. And we talked about his conversation, like I said, January, the first Sunday then, about he engages this Samaritan woman. By doing all this, he's breaking a lot of cultural rules. He's talking to a woman, this man by himself, who's a rabbi, shouldn't do that in that culture. He's talking a Jew to a Samaritan, shouldn't do that in that culture. That's taboo, that's forbidden. But he's reaching out. He's not bitter, he's not angry. But what stands out more than anything in this text is not only the lessons on worship, but can I take a different avenue this morning? Is Jesus sharing the gospel. We just as a church finished up a missions conference. You did phenomenal. You were such a blessing to the missionaries. Every single one of them walked away or written, wrote me or told me in personal conversations. They were so encouraged by your fellowship with them, by your interaction with them, the many of you who did that. You, were, you, you made a tremendous impact upon them. Several of them needed that so desperately, and you ministered to them. You did a phenomenal job, and I commend you for it. But what I want us to focus in on is missions around the world. We've had a month of thinking about it. But what about missions here in Lebanon, Hershey? What about missions at northern Lebanon, at Cedar Crest? What about missions over at Walmart? What about missions at Hershey Park? What about missions here? What about reaching individuals that you go to school with, that you work with? Can we just for a few moments take this story and look at how did Jesus, who was, he was being rejected at this moment, how did Jesus talk to and, and visit with? What did he say? How was his approach to this woman? What can we learn from it? What can we do likewise? Follow along as we read, and then let's bring some thoughts to it. We're in John chapter 4, and we read in the passage, When therefore, verse 1, the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize anybody his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria, as we mentioned. Then cometh he to the city of, of Samaria, which is called Sychar, named to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. J Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat at the well, and it was about the noon hour, sixth hour. There comes a woman of Samaria to draw the water, and Jesus said, Give me to drink, for his disciples had gone away into, into the city to buy food or meat. Then said the woman of Samaria to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans.' 
Jesus answered and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that said to you, Give me to drink, you would have asked of him, and he would have given you living water. The woman saith to him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said, Whosoever drinks of this water shall be thirsty again. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not again, neither come to hither to draw water from this well again. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come hither. She answered and said, um, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have said well, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not really your husband. In that you said truly. The woman said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem it is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is through the Jews. But the hour comes, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah comes, which is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I that speak unto you am he. And upon this came his disciples, and they marveled that he was talking to the woman. Yet none of them dared say, What do you seek? Why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way back into the city and said to the men of the city, Come, see a man which told me all things that I ever did. Is this not the Christ? Then they, the men of the city, went out of the city and came unto Jesus. In the meantime, while his disciples, they were talking with him, prayed to him, saying, Master, you need to eat. And he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Did somebody, any man, brought him ought to eat? Jesus saith unto him, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye there yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reaps receive wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that sows and he that reaps may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that whereon you bestow no labor. Other men labored and you are entered into their labors. Many of the Samaritans of the, great, of the city believed on him for the saying of the woman which had testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans were come to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. He abode there two more days, and many more believed because of his own word. Said on, they said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of your saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And after two days he departs. What do I learn from the text? What do you see? What do you see is this. You see, number one, that when it came to sharing the gospel, the witnessing, Jesus made it a priority. For him, it was something really, really important. For Jesus, it was essential that he would take the time to share the gospel, even though he's on a road traveling. You know how it gets in your traveling and you want to get there and nothing is going to stop you, not even a detour sign or asking directions. You're going to get there. And you're just determined and you're not going to make those wayside rests, though the family is saying, please, please stop. 
You, you want to get there. He still had a ways to go. He still has to travel for a distance, and yet he stops. And he starts talking to this woman. He isn't surrounded by friends. It's just them there. He's in a strange territory, strange country, unfamiliar, and yet he shares the gospel. He's talking to this woman that he's never met before, and he's sharing the gospel with her. He's taking the opportunity, though he's hungry and the disciples are hungry, and he's got other things on his mind, he stops and engages this woman in conversation. He'll probably never see her again, so he takes the opportunity. He's probably never going to engage with her in another travel through as far as he knows. Well, he's God, but in a human sense. So he takes the chance. He's making it a priority that he's sharing the gospel. It is something really important to him to convey to her that she can have water that will satisfy her soul forever. That is spiritual water. That will give her eternal life. So he makes it a priority. This is something important to Jesus. Is it important to you to share the gospel with neighbors and friends? His sharing the gospel was personal. What I mean by that is this. Jesus... He himself took the time to share the gospel. He has disciples. They will do whatever he tells them to do. He could say to them, you guys talk to the Samaritans. You guys talk to this woman. You guys share. But he didn't do that. He made it a personal endeavor. He personally shared the word with, God, with, with this woman. He himself took the time. He didn't leave it to the kids. He didn't leave it to the preachers. He didn't leave it to the missionaries. He didn't leave it to others. He himself shared the gospel message. Do you? Do you take the time to share that gospel message? He personally did it. But let me add something. I believe in institutional outreach. What I mean by that is this. We should, as a church, do outreach ministries. We should do opportunities where we can share the gospel in a reenactment. We should do opportunities where we can share the gospel in some special outreach. We should be sharing the gospel in, in, in opportunities like neighborhood night or, or some type of, of institutional, corporate outreach. That's important that we do that. But it is not to be the only way that the gospel is shared out of this church. If you, if I say, the only evangelism I am doing, the only time I'm sharing the gospel is in an institutional fashion, you're not following the example of Jesus. Jesus personally took opportunity with somebody that he met, that providentially came across his path, that he personally, not in a corporate, not an institution, but he personally shared the word with. Do you? Do you personally share your faith with your classmates? Or do you wait until only final Friday? Do you personally share the word of God with the ladies that you interact at your neighborhood? Or do you say, I'll only wait until there's a ladies fellowship? Do you personally try to reach out to your co-workers? Or do you say, well, I'll hope that maybe they'll come to a reenactment. Jesus personally shared the word. Jesus did it himself on a personal level. There's a church that is preaching the Word of God. It's located on the West Coast. And they had a visitor come here in the last year or two, an instance where a young lady came to their worship service, first time visiting. She came by herself. She was somewhat distraught. People were gracious to her. 
people were kind to her, and she sat through the worship service. She heard the message from the Word of God. That was a clear gospel message that day. Very simple, very pointed. And so the people were excited that this woman, that none of them had ever met, none of them had invited, but she had come to, to their service. They were excited that she came, and she listened, and she was polite, and she smiled afterwards and said, thank you. Then the woman wrote him a letter. She wrote to the church body this letter. Dear church members, Last Sunday I attended your church and I heard your preacher. He said that all men have sinned against God. Because of their sin, they all face eternal separation from God. But then he also said God loved men so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to redeem men from their sins and all those who believe in him would go to heaven and live with God eternally. Is that a good message that she heard? Were you listening? Yeah, was it a clear message that all are sinners, that Christ came to save them? Good message. Good message. My parents recently died. I know they did not believe in Jesus. If what you believe is true, they are damned to hell. You compel me to believe that you yourselves either don't believe this message or that you don't care. You see, we live only two blocks from your church and no one from your church had ever come to our house to share that news. Could somebody around our neighborhood write that to us? Could somebody next door write that to you? Have you shared the gospel personally? Are you planning to share the gospel personally? Jesus, his witnessing was passionate in the fact that Jesus cared enough to talk to this woman about her spiritual needs. To his friends, the woman, they're all surprised. We already read it in verse 9. We read it again when his disciples come in verse 27 that they're shocked, they're surprised. He's talking, this man to this Samaritan woman, a Jew to this Samaritan, and, and they're surprised. But his passion moved him to go beyond the cultural rules and regulations because she had a need. She had a desperate need. He's, here's an individual that he wasn't going to let the biases and the, the prejudices keep him back. Does it keep you back? Here he is as one who says that this woman who he knew her lifestyle, he says to her, call your husband, and she says, well, I have no husband. You said right because actually you've been shacking up with multiple men. And the guy that you're now shacking up with, he's not your husband. He knew. He knew that she wasn't living a, an approved lifestyle by the word of God. And yet he talked to her. He takes the time out of passion and out of concern for this woman who she would by Jewish standards be unclean. But he cares enough. He talks with her to talk about her eternal life, her eternal destiny, her soul. He's passionate. He's caring. And when she starts throwing back in his face, well, what about the place that we worship? Well, what about, you know, what about what we believe and what you believe? He is patient, passionate enough to continue to try to share with her rather than saying, oh, you know, you're not listening. I'll shake the dust off my foot and I'm just going to walk away because you didn't respond to my very first statement. He's passionate. Are you? 
Are you one that says, I am like Christ in that regard? John Courier, a prisoner, had committed a crime down south years ago, and as a result, he was in prison for a while, but then he was paroled, furloughed, whatever you want to say, put on a prison work farm where local farmers could take some of the prisoners and they would take charge of them and they would chain them up at night. They would have them work on their fields at the daytime. And so he worked in this prison camp, farm camp, for several years. During the time that he's there, the prison authorities get a letter that says that his case has been reviewed, new evidence, he's not guilty. He should be released. They go and they tell the farmer that one of the men working on your farm, this John Courier, he's not guilty, he, he should be released. Farmer says, I'll take care of it. The farmer takes care of it 10 years later. Never shares with the man. Never tells him until somebody else from the prison comes again and recognizes and says he's still there. Then the farmer admits that he was getting free labor for 10 years at the expense of that man. We are shocked that somebody would do that to another human being, would not tell them of their freedom that would give them 10 years of freedom. However, in our shocked attitude, have you told people about the freedom in Christ or have you been holding it back? Have you shared with them that Jesus saves, that Jesus delivers, he gives peace, he gives rest, he gives hope, have you given them that news or are you letting them serve more years chained by some addiction, some habit, some lack of peace, lack of purpose without knowing forgiveness in Jesus Christ who when he comes, he makes all creatures new again. We're no better than that farmer if we hold back the truth of there's freedom in Jesus Christ. There is peace in Christ. There is eternal hope in Christ. There is a knowing that you're on your way to heaven in Christ and you no longer have to fear death, disease, or any such thing. Don't hold back the truth. Jesus was passionate. He made it a priority. He did it personally. His witnessing was pointed. What I mean by that is several things. He took the opportunity. He didn't let it go to pass. Oh, yes, I'm, I'm, I want to talk with her. And it wasn't, it wasn't a comment like, well, I don't know that much about her. I've got to wait until I really get to know her. There's time and there's a place for that. We need to talk about that. And we need to explore that and develop that more. But in this point, in this occasion, Jesus was very pointed because it was a passing relationship, a passing opportunity. And so he took it. He made he clearly points out her condition. We read the verses already, but look again in verses 16 and 17. When he asked her about her marital status, he isn't trying to embarrass her. He's just trying to point out to her that according to the commandments of God, she has violated them. She has broken the commandments. And he's being very pointed where he talks about not coveting another spouse, not, not being in an immoral relationship. And so he's pointing out her need that she is a sinner. Therefore, as a sinner, she is separated from God. He's very pointed. He's very, he's very blunt with compassion. And he's saying to that individual, the way somebody has said to you and me, that because of our sin of temper, or our sin of greed, or our sin of jealousy, or lying, that we're separated from the Father. 
that we need to have forgiveness or we will not be in heaven. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And somebody was pointed with you. Somebody explained it to you that you cannot get to heaven on your own because we're sinners. The only one who can get us to heaven is somebody who is sinless. That's not me to help you. That's not you to help me. That's not your grandparents or your spouse or your kids. All of us are in the same boat. We're sinners. We need somebody who is sinless to rescue us. There's only one. And he is who? Jesus Christ. So he, she's, she, he's very pointed. And when she tries to veer him off target and talk about who's worshiping in the right mountain, is it Gerizim where we are worshiping or is it in Mount Zion in Jerusalem where you worship? Who has the better buildings? Who has the better worship center? And he just stays on target. He's pointed and talking about her need of a Savior, of a Messiah, of someone who can give her eternal forgiveness. Very pointed. Very pointed to say to her, I am he. I am who I am. I am God in the flesh. I am the promised one. I am the one who from the very beginning of time, God said that there would come one born of a woman who would come and provide redemption. It's Jesus Christ. And he is saying, I'm the predicted one. I'm the Messiah. I'm all the terms. Messiah, Christos, anointed one, prophesied one. All those combined together. He's the one. And he made it very clear. He didn't say it in these words at this time, but exactly. But the essence is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. That's his pointed message to her. Do you give that message with passion to the people you come across? Maybe on a one-time opportunity. Maybe on a long-term classmate relationship. Co-worker relationship that you're sharing with them. His evangelism was productive. His witnessing was productive. What I mean by that is simply this. That she responds to it. As he shares the word with her, all of a sudden her response as the passage unfolds, she left the water pot. She's so excited she doesn't even take the water that she came for. She runs back to the city and she says, come and see. I, there's a man here. He told me all that I did. This is the Messiah. This is the prophesied one. This is the one who gives eternal life. It worked. His talking to her, his sharing with her, this woman he hadn't met before, by giving her the truth, pointing out a need, pointing out how he could meet the need, she responded. She responded in the sense that she goes and tells others. It worked. She runs into the city and says, guys, come on out. Come on out and meet this guy. And the entire city comes out, as we read. Maybe that's what he means when he says, lift up your eyes in verse 35. Look on the fields, they are white already. It was very customary, very common for the Samaritans, the turbans that they wore had a whiteness to them. There might be a color in the very center, but otherwise the men would wear this white turban. Here they come flocking out of the city, coming towards the well. And Jesus says, lift up your eyes, look, look. And all they see is this mass of people running down this crowd and their white heads bobbing as they're coming running. Is that what he means? Here's that the harvest is, it's white. It's ready in the, by the parallel that the harvest, the seed would all of a sudden show itself that it's ready to harvest. It's whitish now. 
It's, it's come to that point where it's ready and there's hearts that are ready and there's souls ready, just like it would be the time to bring in the physical harvest. It's time now to reap in this harvest. And then Jesus stands there and he talks with these people. And these individuals, the Samaritans, this woman who most of us would, well, her own people wanted nothing to do with her. Why is she there at noontime? Ladies would come early in the day. The only time probably that the other ladies would let her get water. She's a rejected individual, an immoral individual, an individual that people didn't want anything to do with. God saved her. God can save and work in somebody's heart who isn't morally upright. The answer is yes. And thank God he does. Thank God that he saves people who at times in their past they might have been given to drugs, liquor, sex, whatever it may be that, that the Word of God would warn us about. Jealousy, greed, the, the whole being, being so materialistic and being dominated by that. Or anger, jealousy, vengeance, whatever there may be. God can save those individuals. God can reach down and pluck into the life and the heart somebody like a Norma McCorvey. You, you've heard of her before. You know her well. She's an individual that a few years ago, around 2000, she was working as, a, as an advocate for the abortion movement. And she was very prominent in the abortion movement. And she ended up where she was working in this one city that nearby, a gentleman by the name of um, Benham, I forget the first name, who was leading a Christian group that was providing alternatives to abortions to ladies, they started speaking in public venues. She, pro-abortion, he and pro-life. And they started speaking. And in one of those engagements in a public setting, he made the statement about her right there on the platform. He said, you are responsible for the death of millions and millions of babies in America. She didn't deny it. But Benham afterwards said, I could see that that really hurt her, that I personally attacked her. So he got out of his office one day and walked over to the clinic where she was at and asked if he could talk with her. He asked her for forgiveness for him making that personal attack to her. She said, I'll forgive you. And he said, could we ever sit down and talk some more and just explain in private some of our viewpoints? She said, I would be glad to do that. So she started having interaction with Benham and some of his office workers. And by her own accord, she said she found that after she had conversations for a while, she found that they were more genuine and they were more caring about her as an individual than her story. And so she started visiting more and more and saying to these people, you know, can we go to lunch together? And they started over a period of time sharing their faith with her. And around that year 2000, she prayed and asked Christ to be her Savior. A short time later, she followed in believer's baptism. God can save anyone. He can even save the Jane Roe in Roe versus Wade. That's who she is. Can God save anyone? The answer is yes. God, in his, in his program of witnessing, Jesus makes a clear demonstration that it's to be perpetual. What I mean by that is this. Jesus has witnessed down in Jerusalem. 
He has shared the word. He's on a journey. He's busy. He's headed home. He's hungry. He's thirsty. And as he's traveling, he is still going to witness to this one. Despite his lack of comfort, his witnessing is perpetual. He takes the opportunity to witness to her. And then, after he talks with her, she runs in the city, gets the whole people to come out, the men of the city, and he took time to spend with them. He wants to get home, but they say, can you spend time with us? How many days does he spend there? Two days. The Jews, when they traveled through this area, if they were traveling like he did, they would make sure that they started at sunrise and get through by sunset. They don't want to be staying overnight in Samaria. That's really taboo. Jesus spends two days. He is so concerned about souls, and it doesn't stop when he sees one that he's witnessed to. It doesn't stop when he's witnessed to two. It doesn't stop when he's given money to missions. It doesn't stop when he played a role in a reenactment. It doesn't stop when he worked a booth in one of the neighborhood nights. It doesn't stop when he gave one tract out. He is working and working and working on a perpetual basis of trying to get the gospel out. Time and time and time again. It's his lifestyle. Is it yours? Is it mine? Is he getting out the, are we getting out the word the way that he did? His witnessing was a partnership. He makes it very clear. He says to these guys, he says, when you do this, you are not on your own. You're afraid to share the word at times. But he says, watch, I want you to understand, he that reaps receives wages, that he that, and gathers life eternal. Both he that sows, he that reaps may rejoice. One sows, another reaps. Doesn't it remind you? of that idea that Jesus talks about through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, where he talks about how there's some who plant, some who water, but God does what? Gives the increase. The whole idea of a partnership. We are working at this together. How can we help one another more and more in our witnessing? We're going to be talking about that this evening. This Sunday evening and next Sunday evening, laying out for you an opportunity to help you out more for you in your witnessing. Jesus says, this is a partnership. We're not alone. In fact, he makes the comment when he's wrapping up and he's ready to send to heaven. He says, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And then he tells the disciples, go make all disciples. And he wraps up after he says, go, go make disciples, he says. And lo, I am with you always, all times, all places. We're not alone. We're not alone when we do the witnessing. There's a gal. Her name is Josephine or Joey Guerrero. She's Filipino. She's one of the few who have earned this Medal of Freedom from the American military because of all she did. When the Japanese invaded the island, took over the Philippines, the United States and the Allies, they needed information from the inside. What about some of the placements of weapons and guns so that if they were to bring by ships, if they were to bring by troops to land, she became the most effective Filipino spy. She got to know some people in the know. She got information. And she was never once, the amazing part of her story is never once was she ever stopped, suspected, searched. She got through all the different Japanese patrols. She got through all of their different barriers that they were set up. 
She went wherever she wanted and nobody, nobody grabbed her and stopped her. There was a reason. She had something. Her story is the leper spy. She had leprosy. <laughs> everybody kind of gave her room and gave her space. That's because everybody looked at leprosy as something that was evil and bad and something that was contagious. You know, we have something that is far better that can enable us to do so much more for Christ. We have what Jesus promised called the Holy Spirit. He lives within us. And when he moves within us, he gives us the boldness, the ability, the opportunity, the partnership to be able to share the gospel. When you talk with a classmate, when you share a tract, when you sit down with a neighbor and say, hey, can we just get together? And you get to know your neighbor and then you share your testimony with them. You're not alone. God, the Holy Spirit, is working in you, with you, to be able to woo that person to saving faith. This isn't a one-and-done type of a ministry. This isn't I'm-all-by-myself ministry. This is a group effort by believers to help one another, all of whom are empowered by the Spirit of God to speak. And you say, but I don't know what to say. Doesn't he promise that the Spirit will give you the words to say in John 14? Stop giving excuses. Take the opportunities. Learn how to do it. Come, get the training that we'll provide because witnessing is promoted. Jesus said this isn't something that I and I alone do. He made it very clear in verse 35. This is something that all of you are supposed to be doing. You lift up your eyes. He's saying that the disciples should be as concerned. In fact, this is the very beginning of his ministry and he's telling his disciples, look, look, share the gospel. Do you remember the last words before he ascends? Share the gospel. Share the gospel. It was a priority that he promoted to them. Share the gospel. Share the gospel. Get the gospel out. I was listening to a sermon a couple of weeks ago on evangelism, and I got, I got kind of ticked at the preacher because he made a statement there that I find, found a little bit brazen and offensive at first. If you are not communicating the gospel to lost people, he said, he said, then you don't love Jesus and you don't love other people as much as you should. I bristled at that. How dare him say in question whether I love Jesus. And he went on, he said, you don't love the Lord and you don't love others as much as you love yourself. How dare him? And then after my initial reaction, I had to pause and say, is he right? If you love me, keep my... And why isn't it that I don't share the gospel? They might reject me. They might think less of me. They might not like me. Am I more concerned about self than their soul? Am I more concerned about self than what Jesus tells me to do? And I reminded myself of a poem I learned in high school. The one and only year I went to a Christian school when I got saved as a senior in high school. This was a poem that the pastor asked us to memorize. You lived next door to me for years. We shared our dreams, our joys, our fears. A friend to me you were indeed. A friend who helped me when in need. My faith in you was strong and sure. We had such trust as should endure. No spats between us ever arose. Our friends were alike and so our foes. What sadness then, my friend, to find that after all, 
you weren't so kind. The day my life on earth did end, I found you weren't such a faithful friend. For all those years we spent on earth, you never talked of the second birth. You never spoke of my lost soul and of the Savior, the Messiah, who would make me whole. I plead today from hell's cruel fire and tell you now of my desire. You cannot do a thing for me. No words today, my bonds will free. But do not err, my friend, again. Do all you can for the souls of men. Plead with them now quite earnestly, lest they be cast in hell with me. Who do you love more? Christ, others, yourself. I couldn't think of another word, so I'm putting a fulfilling here <laughs> with a PH. Just to keep the alliteration going. Okay. Jesus was so excited to share the gospel that though he was hungry, he's no longer hungry. You know how sometimes you get involved with something? You get involved with playing some, some one of the electronic games and all of a sudden the hours pass. And you said, oh, oh, I missed sleep. Oh, you get so excited about watching the game. And it's, you know, it's getting down to the last 1.5 seconds. And they fouled the guy. Oh, I miss supper. You get so excited working in the garden. You're so excited that you, the whole afternoon goes by and you realize, oh, I didn't eat lunch and I didn't eat supper. Not in my life, but in some people's lives. You get so excited shopping. Yeah, that you can just keep on going, keep on going, keep on going and bypass a meal or two. Some of you can. You can get so excited talking to somebody about the Bible that time just whizzes by. And it's like, it's like preaching. The time just goes so fast and none of you get to eat. <laughs> Jesus is saying, I so much enjoy doing the will of God. It's my food. My meat is to do the will of God. I don't need the sustenance. He did. But he's saying that the food I don't need right now. Lunch can wait. I'm sharing the word of God. He was finding it satisfying to share the word of God. That's not the only time Jesus did the will of God. When Jesus Christ... When he came to this earth, he was told by Satan, you don't have to die. We'll give you an easier way. I'll, you just bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms. And he was, no, I'm going to do the will of the Father. He was saying when the disciples says, don't go to Jerusalem. Have I come to this world to do my own will? My meat is to do the will of the Father. Lunch can wait. I want to do what God wants me to do. And to the ultimate time, not only sharing the gospel, but the ultimate gift in time that he gave was his life on the cross. We celebrate that this morning, the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood, so that you and I can have eternal life. It is a time where Jesus Christ died on that cross, suffering for hours, 
doing the will of the Father. He could have called 10,000 angels to set him free. But why did he stay on the cross? To do the will of the Father. To pay his, with his life so that you could have eternal life. And he says, you know, on a periodic basis, we choose once a month, celebrate that. Remember that. Get together and come together and worship me and thank me for the sacrifice I have made.